You're listening to Well Blocks, the podcast that helps you put your wellness first. Learn how Black women like you are putting their wellness first in their lives and striving mentally, emotionally, financially, and physically every day. I'm your host, Marilyn Painter, which you can call me Mel. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Well Blocks podcast. I have a really exciting episode today. Today on the podcast, we welcome Dr. Sarah L. Webb. I found Dr. Webb while following a recent social media uproar over comments that a Columbia professor made about model Mia Kim Gatwetch that led to him getting fired from the institution. Digging deep into the story, I found Dr. Webb. Her work really piqued my interest. She has made wellness her style with a very controversial topic, and today we get to hear all about it. For those of you who don't know, colorism is the social marginalization and systemic oppression of people with darker skin tones like myself and the privileging of people with lighter skin tones. Dr. Webb is an international speaker, consultant, and coach, and her work has led her all over the world from Sacramento, California to Sydney, Australia, where she mentors youth and students. Today, we welcome Dr. Webb. It is a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Um, I'd like to start today with talking about the history of colorism. Where did that term really come from? So in most places, there have been hierarchies, caste systems, long before uh, many people have even written or recorded history. But the colorism that we know today really took root during the colonial period, when European nations were establishing empires around the world through violence and mass genocide and things like that, and spreading the idea, spreading the narrative that Europeans were superior to all other types of people around the globe. And so a lot of that created hierarchies within indigenous places and on continents like Africa, Asia, and North and South America. And then over time, people of color, the local indigenous or the enslaved or the colonized people started to internalize those ideas and started to internalize the belief that, you know, oh, okay, well, yeah, Europeans must be superior. Look at all the things that they have, you know, forgetting the fact that they took it by violence and internalizing this sense of inferiority. And so amongst people of color, amongst brown people, black people, people of different ethnic backgrounds, the more European you look, the more valued or praised you receive, you receive in society. And I do think um, even amongst places like, you know, Asia or Southeast Asia, where you would say, oh, well, they're, they're all the same race or they're all the same ethnic group. We still see this preference for lighter skin, but it is. Um, this association of having fair skin and straighter hair or lighter eye colors, not just with being more beautiful, but also being of a higher class, right? Being more, even seen as more human or more professional and that sort of thing. That is ex- especially true in my own family. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, preferred my friends who were lighter skinned. And she used to tell me, be careful of that one. She's going she's gonna to steal your money. I was like, you know, so I I really experienced that. So are racism and colorism synonymous or are they wildly different? They are very similar. 
but they are different in important ways. So they're similar in the fact that, again, the system or the hierarchy is that Europeans are at the top of the hierarchy. When we look at colorism, even amongst Europeans, you'll see that the ones with the blonde hair and blue eyes are at the top of that hierarchy. And so colorism is sort of a hierarchy within a hierarchy and such that, you know, you might say that Black people in different countries are pushed to the bottom of society and pushed and sort of held down at the bottom of the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. But in that, within that tier, within that range, the, your experience is different depending on what you physically look like. And so I always remind people that you can be the same race and have very different skin tones, very different hair textures. And when I say same race, I mean, same mother, same father, right? Literally siblings growing up in the same household, raised by the same parents, born to have the same ancestry DNA can look very different from each other. And so the way they experience racism and other forms of oppression is going to change and be impacted or influenced by how light their skin tone is or how tightly curled their hair is. Mm. Okay. So you're a colorism coach. What exactly is a colorism coach and what led you to this course of work? Yes. Oh, I'm glad you're asking this question because I don't get asked about that a lot. Um, So I do emphasize the colorism healing part of it. And when I first started the the blog back in 2011, 2013, I didn't, I knew healing had to be a part of the title. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with that yet. But over the years, what happened is I would get comments or emails or direct messages from people telling me how my content, just the blogs and the videos and the posts, helped them heal, helped them feel better, helped improve their self-esteem or helped them practice forgiveness or helped them uh, find peace and joy in their life. And I wanted to understand what was happening. Why was my content doing that for people? And I also wanted to be able to replicate it and do it more intentionally, right? So whatever those outcomes were, I wanted to be able to do that with intent and make sure that people weren't falling through the cracks And I also understood that if some people were feeling that way, just from stumbling upon my content by accident, that it could go even deeper if they worked with me directly in a more intentional and formal way. And so what I've done is sort of created a a framework or a system where people get some of the content, but in a structured way. So instead of just randomly seeing a post here or there that may or may not apply to them, the coaching program is, especially the one-on-one coaching program, is tailored and customized to yours, where you are, like where you're starting out in your particular journey. And it includes a lot more hands-on support and direct feedback too, I think, and accountability for the the kind of healing that you seek. Um, And then I also more recently started group coaching because also some of the feedback I get is that people want to be in an environment with other dark-skinned women in particular and just be able to be in a safe space where they can vent and cry and feel seen and not be judged or gaslit and just the catharsis and the validation of hearing other people's stories and confirming your own story. I think that's so important. And so there are a lot of facets and components to it. And it's still evolving in terms of how I offer it and the structure of it. So the group coaching has now 
just recently as of this month turned into monthly support groups. And I'm hoping that that makes it more accessible for more people. This is, this is super interesting. It's kind of taking life coach to a very niche, you know, perspective. I like it. So you travel extensively for your work. What are some of these similarities you see when you travel? Like is colorism the same everywhere? Is it different? Do you see a lot of um, sameness when it comes to the U.S. versus another country? Like what are you seeing out there? Yes. So it's definitely, it has shades depending on where you are. So I definitely just want to say up front, there are definitely regional differences. Okay. And some of the differences I've noticed are, one, whether or not the location, whether it be a town or an entire country, is racially homogenous. Like if, they're, if most of the people in that country tend to be the same race mm-hmm. versus a country where it's a lot more diversity and you get people from all walks of life and you have a large population of immigrants and um, really diverse cities and neighborhoods and towns and really just racially and ethnically integrated, mm-hmm. I find that it's, it's different. And so amongst places where most of the people identify the same in terms of their race or ethnicity, I think colorism is that much more obvious and it's people have, it's more easy to pinpoint and identify because people aren't talking about race as much. And I found that in places where it's very diverse, it might seem counterintuitive, but when there are lots of different ethnic groups and racial groups, um, people seem to hone in on the racial differences more so than the color differences. They're still there. Mm -hmm. They're very much still there, but in terms of people's awareness um, and how they choose to label their experiences, I found that in more diverse places, people prioritize or again, focus in on racial and ethnic separations. Um, But then also I've noticed like just within, even within the United States, there's a difference. I'm in Harlem, New York right now. Mm -hmm. And Harlem is a neighborhood in New York that is one of the most iconic places in Black history, right? Especially in African-American history. And there's a celebration of Blackness in Harlem that doesn't exist in many other cities outside the continent of Africa, right? Like diaspora, just you're not going to find the level of just Black celebration and Black love being out loud and unapologetic in most cities, whether it be in the United States or, you know, the UK and places like that. And so I found too, the history of a place, if, if there is um, a, a history of revolution, if there's a history of, you know, Black or Indigenous thought and uh, artistry and culture, I think that can make a difference in terms of making it less painful, right? Because right. you have outlets to affirm your darker skin versus where I used to live in central Illinois, mm-hmm. like 75% white and the just the Black non-white culture as a whole was just suppressed, and right. like pushed to the side and it was like don't be too black and don't be black out loud and it was just completely different <laughs> um so I, I've said like being in Harlem is healing my heart because it's just a lot more affirmation for my dark black female self I'm close by Harlem too so ah, cool. yes, I've lived <laughs> there too so I've definitely experienced all of the good blackness that it has to offer so yeah. so for the purpose of those who are listening Can you kind of share some examples of colorism that we should be aware of? 
Absolutely. Ooh, there are so many different kinds of examples. So I'm going to try to categorize them to organize my thoughts. So I'll start with the personal individual form of colorism, how it often shows up is with comments like, oh, I don't want to, I, I better go in the shade because I don't want to get too black or I don't want to get too dark. Right. Um, and then making that comment about yourself. But then we also know lots of people make those kinds of comments about other people. Right. And even the, the, example you shared of, you know, being told, well, that darker person is going to steal from you or they're really dangerous. So a lot of times it's what you hear. And so I tell people, listen to words, look out for words that call attention to skin tone, or even if it's not exactly stated, it might be implied. So if you have two children, for example, two siblings, two cousins, and the lighter skin cousin, people are saying, oh, she's so pretty. And you don't hear the same affirmation for the darker skin sibling or relative. That's your cue, right? It's what you hear, but also what you don't hear. Um, and then in terms of like interpersonal dynamics, you hear things in dating in terms of like, oh, I just have a preference. And I'm actually doing a live stream on Monday about where preferences come from and how they're socially conditioned and um, they're still harmful, even if they might feel innocent, they can still be very harmful. Um, But then one thing I also always have to mention is that colorism also impacts the way people perceive you at work and the way people interact with you in professional settings. And so if you're darker skinned, you're often seen as less intelligent. Mm -hmm. You might be seen as incompetent. You might be seen as too threatening or too intimidating to work with certain clients. Um, And then, you know, the government has actually, people have been sued. Businesses have been sued for managers telling people, well, you're too dark to work with the clients on this side of town. So we're going to send you to another store in Harlem. Basically, I think that was like a oh real, gosh. A real situation. Serious? Yeah. Well, we have that going on right now with Judge Katanji Brown, you know, and it's it's very outward. It's loud. And it's like, are you serious? Are you challenging her, her, her qualifications based on what exactly the color of her skin? It's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And there, there are so many people who are less qualified, but because of the color of their skin and, and also how she chooses to wear her hair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's more qualified than a lot of the people already um, the thing. who are judges. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> and the facts mm-hmm. prove that. So, yeah. so how should we, you just shared with us different examples. And I think all of us can say we've experienced at least one or two throughout our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. What, is, what, what is the best advice that you can give us? Um, just like in, in terms of our response, like how do we respond to um, the very subtle ways, um, innuendos of colorism or you know, whatever people choose to bring to us? I think this might sound a little obvious, but I think the first thing to do is to respond. And it might sound obvious, but when you're trying to put it into practice, it's actually harder than it sounds. Mm -hmm. Because so often we'll hear a so-called joke, uh, we'll hear a so-called innocent comment, and people don't say anything. People just stay silent, or they laugh it off, or they don't want to draw attention to themselves. And so it's actually, it sounds simple, but it's not easy to actually say something in the moment. And I think it doesn't have to be confrontational either, because one, 
it's very possible that the person you respond to gets defensive or, you know, pushes back or that you receive some kind of backlash for speaking up, but you don't have to necessarily like point the finger at them. A lot of times it's as simple as saying, could you repeat that? Or what do you mean by that? Could you explain why you think that's funny, right? So just asking them a question, asking them to self-reflect on what they just said or asking them to self-reflect on what they just did, um, I think is a simple way to, one, challenge what they said, but then also open up a conversation, right? Give them the opportunity to then ask you a question. You can say, well, you know, there's colorism is real and kind of maybe let that lead into a deeper conversation. And I also say too, um, for responding is not just for the person who perpetuated the colorism. Responding is also for the person who might've been the target of it. Because even if the other person never changes their mind, Mm -hmm. you'd be surprised at how much it means to the other people in the room that someone spoke up for them or that someone saw what was happening and was an ally for them in that moment. I think sometimes that's just as important, if not more important than whether or not the other person listens or chooses to change is what it could mean in terms of the support of the people who have been the target of colorism. So definitely speaking up in the moment and it doesn't, you don't have to know a lot about colorism to simply just ask people like, why do you think that? Or what, what, where do you think that attitude or that preference comes from, right? Just asking questions and getting them to maybe rethink a little bit in the moment. Do you think we can solve the like dark issues that exist within the Black community? Because I feel like it's so unnecessary when we as Black people, we, ha- we know we have different shades of Black throughout our community but I feel like darker skinned people pitch against lighter skinned people and then we go hard at them and then they kick back and do you what are you what are your thoughts around how it's affecting the way we relate to each other when we pick between lighter and darker I think that's a great point and I talk about how colorism has frayed the fabric of our community it's frayed the threads that tie us together like they they keep getting frayed and pulling apart. And so I think the first thing to do is to acknowledge it. We can't repair a relationship if people are acting like nothing happened, right? Can you imagine like if you, someone steals your money, your roommate steals your money and they want to make amends, but they don't acknowledge the fact that they stole your money, right? So simply acknowledging where things have gone wrong and taking accountability saying, if you're the roommate who wants to be invited back into the apartment or the house (laughs) saying, you know, I I did steal your money and that was wrong. And I apologize. And I'm making every effort to never do that again. I'm changing my ways. And that's something that we haven't been willing to do. We want to be allowed back into the apartment as a roommate, but we don't want people to call us out on anything. No, I don't, you know, don't bring up the time that I stole your money. Like you should just accept me back into the house without ever bringing that up. And so I think accountability, acknowledging, taking ownership of our, of the part that we've played in it, and then making a conscious effort not to do it again. Um, I think that's the only way we can move forward and heal. And I still see a lot of resistance to that. Okay. I am assuming that your work has shifted a lot since Black Lives Matter. And if it has, in what ways can you share that it has shifted? Yeah, it's definitely shifted since the start of, well, I'll say, I think 
the the seeds of Black Lives Matter were planted before I officially started Colorism Healing. But it's that I call that year of 2020 the Black Lives Matter revolution, the renaissance, right? There was a a surge of attention uh, to Black issues. And it's definitely affected and shifted the way I approach colorism healing. One, because it's almost necessary to help people understand that it's not just that Black Lives Matter but it's that all Black lives matter. Mm -hmm. And so even when we are talking about Black issues, for example, people want to prioritize um, men in the conversation. Or people want to prioritize, or they feel uh, safer around, or they have more concern and more compassion for people of lighter skin tones, right? Mm -hmm. And so are, you know, people who are cisgendered or, you know, uh, heterosexual mm-hmm. and realizing that and we're, if we're talking about loving black people and caring for black people and protecting black people we have to be looking at the most marginalized forms of black people and so I, I've gotten a lot of pushback in terms of oh well this is creating division and we all need to be united to fight the real enemy of racism and you know I actually literally on a live stream I did yesterday Someone was on in the comments saying, you know, this is not true mm-hmm. and there's no difference in how black people are treated in the workplace. And so it's just a help raising the need to simply explain that colorism is just as real as racism or sexism or, you know, homophobia and those kinds of things. And that it is one of the intersections, if we think about intersectional Mm -hmm. feminism and things like that, it is one of the significant intersections impacting the way we experience racism as Black people. Mm. Okay. And, And my final question to you is that you do this healing work and it has to weigh heavily on you as a person, as a woman, as a black woman, um, because I feel like colorism requires very strong energy. How do you balance that out in your life? Like what is your go-to Ooh. wellness <laughs> style or if we could call it that? Oh, this is a big question. One, I just appreciate you for acknowledging that because it is heavy. Um, and the older I get, the more mature I get, the more I continue on my journey, the better I get at it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the past, some of the ways I've dealt with it was not very well. (laughs) I didn't deal with it very well. (laughs) Um, but you know, I had to go through periods where I would just like stop posting online, not with any particular plan or intention. I just like the, I didn't have the bandwidth, right? right? So I would go months without like creating any content and just focusing on other things in my life that needed attention at the time. And now what I've learned in dealing with colorism, but also other areas of my life is to build in breaks so that I don't necessarily get to a point where I have to take this massive one year break, but in the everyday, um, you know, not, uh, and that has to do a lot with setting boundaries, Right. And so for me, for example, um, also being sort of empathetic and really feeling people's energy, Mm -hmm. I had to stop accepting DMs on Instagram 
Um, I still reply to comments, but the DMs is just for me, my capacity, my emotional capacity mm-hmm. is not there. And so not feeling like I have to do all the things for everybody that I have to be all things to all people and accepting the fact that while it might frustrate people that I'm not responding to DMs, um, it's, I don't owe people that to be in certain spaces, especially at certain times, right? Like I don't actually owe them that. And so it's okay to say, to set that boundary, set that precedent, like, okay, DMs is just one thing I'm not active, a space I'm not active in and being willing to, you know, have some people say, oh, well, I don't want to work with you at all because you don't use DMs or whatever. (laughs) And so one, getting used to getting more and more comfortable with the fact that not everyone is going to like me, it helps to ease that anxiety because really that over the years, there's been so much anxiousness, so much, so many anxious thoughts about like, oh, I don't want to upset people or people are going to be mad at me or people are going to be angry at me and not no longer owning that energy. Right. right. And so it's still true. People will still be angry, frustrated, disagree, dislike, but I don't have to own that anymore. Right. I know now that um, as long as what I'm doing is within my ethical framework and my moral value, it's aligned with my values. Um, I don't have to take on other people's anger or disapproval. And so those are the kind of boundaries that are, are very important. And um, getting used to telling people, you know, I can't offer free labor, right? It's, right. I try to do as much as I can for free in terms of putting out information and content and educating people just with my social media posts. But there got to a point again in 2020, as my audience started to grow, where people were asking very personalized questions in the DMs, like very specific to them. And so I started saying, well, if I can respond to your comment publicly and use it to educate everyone, then I can do it for free. But if you want this to be like me holding your hand and walking you through this process, as a dark-skinned Black woman, I don't have the bandwidth to offer that free emotional and intellectual labor. And getting, again, just more confident in being able to say that to people. Mm. I think that's good. I think the pandemic has really taught us, one, to set those boundaries, to have an off button. That's the second thing, because we... We are black women. We are accustomed just doing for everyone, and that's been our mantra. Like, let's just mm-hmm. keep going because we can. You know, somehow we'll be taken care of. But I think, and thanks to this younger generation, they've really been very good at yeah. cutting it off. And I'm just like, <laughs> look at my nieces and nephews. I'm like, yes, y'all are doing what we couldn't do because we weren't cultured that way. You know, <laughs> so. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Webb. This has been so good. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Well Black Sis. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other women striving to be well to find the show. If you want to hear more from our community, you can follow on Instagram at wellblacksis and check out the website at wellblacksis.com to find out what exciting meetup we have next. You can also sign up for the Well Black Sis newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on future Well Blacksis updates. Talk to you soon.